We're effectively pre-revenue right now. We have not tried to monetize any of our customers. We have about 50,000 people who are signed up to our system and are using our system, but uh, we are not actively trying to monetize them yet because, quite frankly, the experience isn't where we want it to be. You are listening to Conversations with Nathan Latka. Now, if you're hearing this, it means you're not currently on our subscriber feed. To subscribe, go to getlatka.com. When you subscribe, you won't hear ads like this one. You'll get the full interviews. Right now, you're only hearing partial interviews. And you'll get interviews three weeks earlier from founders, thinkers, and people I find interesting. Like Eric Wan, 18 months before he took Zoom public. We got to grow faster, minimum is 100% over the past several years. Or bootstrap founders like Vivek of Question Pro. When I started the company, it was not cool to raise. Or Looker CEO Frank Bean before Google acquired his company for $2.6 billion. We want to see a real pervasive data culture, and then the rest flows behind that. If you'd like to subscribe, go to gitlatka.com. There, you'll find a private RSS feed that you can add to your favorite podcast listening tool, along with other subscriber-only content. Now look, I never want money to be the reason you can't listen to episodes. On the checkout page, you'll see an option to request free access. I grant 100% of those requests, no questions asked. Hello, everyone. My guest today is Michael Lewis. He's the founder of Stellar Stellar Semiconductor, which was sold to Broadcom in 2000, then went on to found Cryptic Studios, which was sold to Atari in 2008. For the past decade, Michael has been deeply involved in charitable efforts through the Onspar Foundation, formerly the Lewis Charitable Foundation, and now is running Mycroft.ai. Michael, you ready to take us to the top? Sure. Let's do it. All right. So first off, you were not you were not leading Mycroft when I last did my episode with Mycroft. So something changed. They pulled you out of charitable giving and back into the business from an operating perspective. How'd they do it? That's right. Um, well, uh, to be honest, I was a backer on the Mark II Kickstarter project, and so I've been following Mycroft for a while. And uh, when Josh reached out and was looking for some additional uh, high level help at the company, um, I took a look at it and. Um, I decided that this was a good time in my life, and Mycroft's mission merges you know, perfectly with the work I was doing at my foundation, and, uh, and the company itself, the technology, the uh, working with hardware, working with software, working with community, uh, that's all in my work experience as well, and I'm really passionate about all of those things. So um, it was really just a perfect combination of things that... Uh, that got me interested. So for those people that missed the first episode, just give us the quick keynote here. What does Mycroft do? What do people pay you for? Ah, right. So uh, Mycroft makes a privacy-first open-source voice assistant. So what's, uh, what's really important about this is that we allow the users to control their own experience. So uh, we don't consider the users our users. We're building a community of people. And this community includes people who are developers, people who are uh, assist us with con- con- contributing their data, and uh, and people who just want to have a privacy experience uh, in their own home. You know, putting something that's always listening in your home can be a very invasive feeling uh, experience, and we want people to feel safe and comfortable in their homes. And uh, privacy is you know is something that you should be able to have. In your home. So, Michael, you're, selling, so this, you're selling this directly to consumers, moms and dads at homes, or is it a B2B model? 
Uh, it's a bit of both, to be honest. Um, we're a small company, and so we're starting off by direct-to-consumer. We're going to fulfill our latest Kickstarter, and then we'll continue to sell units uh, direct-to-consumer. But I'm calling them uh, developer kits at this point, because to be honest, uh, the price point isn't really at the level where we could uh, realistically and ship them to consumers. Mm -hmm. uh, but the functionality is totally there. So uh, we want to be able to uh, get to early adopters. And, um, and down the road, we expect to partner with OEMs to provide our assistant technology in their own devices, including smart speakers um, and, uh, you know, Really, so Michael, sorry, refrigerator. I, I still don't understand what you're selling, right? So, so what are you actually ah. selling to the consumer? I, I have my own house here. What are you selling okay. to me? Okay, so a smart speaker is basically something just like the um, the Amazon, you know, Home uh, Assistant or, uh, or sorry, <laughs> Google Home uh, or the uh, the Amazon Echo. Got it. Right? So this so isn't just like an SDK you're selling your to me. It's a physical piece of hardware. Yes, yes. So initially, the Mark II is a physical piece of hardware. It embodies our uh, our software and connects to our platform. It's basically it's an off-the-shelf device that just works. Okay, and it's I consider it a reference device for other OEMs who want to produce devices that are like it uh, or that just incorporate voice technology in their own products. So while we will sell it direct to consumers, we're using this to prove out our technology, to demonstrate that it works, and to um, and to serve as a reference design for OEMs who want to come in and, and integrate it in with their own technology. So, so, what does it cost you to produce one of these pieces of hardware, one speaker? Uh, about a hundred bucks right now. Okay, and what do you retail it for? That's just the hard costs. Um, it's not set just yet, um, but um, you know we're not due to really ship it. I think until the second or third quarter next year. That's I think our realistic timeline. Got it. So, are you guys so, pre-revenue uh, pre today? Um, we have um, we're effectively pre-revenue right now. We have not tried to monetize any of our customers. We have about fifty thousand people who are signed up to our system and are using our system, but uh, we are not actively trying to monetize them yet because, for, quite frankly, the experience isn't where we want it to be. We're not marketing to the audience right now. We're we're more working with developers and uh, people who want to. Um, you know, add to the system and improve the system and who are interested in integrating it in the future with their own products. Mm -hmm. Got it. Okay. So 50,000 people is kind of an open source ish like platform. You have your own piece of hardware. Have you guys bootstrapped this or raised? And if you've raised how much? Uh, Mycroft over the last five years has raised uh, over $5 million in crowdfunding uh, and uh, very favorable loans. Mm -hmm. Um, but uh, we've never raised an institutional round. So what that's is a favorable right loan. Uh, basically, it's a long-term loan with very low rates, uh, and that's basically a balloon payment at the end. Mm -hmm. So, what would you consider low? Are you talking like five or six percent? Yeah, exactly. And and why did how I mean how does a bank get comfortable loaning to you when you're pre-revenue? What are they loaning against? What's the collateral? It's uh, these actually weren't from banks. Um, one of them was uh, actually from a previous investment deal that kind of went sour before uh, I got involved. Um, and as a compromise, they agreed to convert the part of the investment that had, uh, um, you know, that had been made uh, into a loan rather than keeping it as equity. Um, another big uh, part of uh, loan is actually from my own foundation because 
Mycroft's mission so closely matches what my foundation is interested in, I was able to convince the board of directors to make a sizable investment in Mycroft uh, purely because of, uh, of the mission. So how much of the $5 million uh, but, raise has been debt that has to be paid back? Um, offhand, it's um, a little under $2 million. Okay, got it. So nice, nice mix here. Now, what I mean, you guys have also a lot of investors, right? According to Crunchbase, I mean, you guys have forty-seven investors that have put in the five million dollars. Your okay. cap table must be a wreck. Uh, oh, it's more exciting than that. Uh, we have over fifteen hundred investors because we uh, went through a crowdfunding uh, campaign a couple years back. So, so how do you manage that? I mean, is your cap table literally sixteen hundred people on it? Yep. The um, basically we are very forthcoming with our investors. We put out a monthly newsletter, try to keep them informed as to what's going on. We've never had any problems uh, to date. Um, and um, yeah, I mean, it's it's really about being transparent with what's going on in the company and setting the proper expectations. I mean, but so for example, if you're going, how much are you trying to raise right now, institutional? Uh, our target's $5 million. Okay. Um, so, I mean, one of the things that obviously any institutional is going to come in and look at is the current cap table. And is there any risk? And one of the risks they'll look at is, well, if one, just one of these 1,600 investors hold out on some decision, it could tank the whole company, essentially. How do you convince the VC that you potentially work with on this, on this new round that that's not a risk? Uh, well, there's a couple of re- ways. Um, first of all, we have two classes of shares. We have voting shares and non-voting shares. So, all this... Um, the cohort of the crowdfunding investors are all non-voting shares, so that's one issue. Um, secondly, as I said, you know we, we keep our uh, investors happy, but um, you know there are ways around this. We may have to you know uh, do some uh, creative um, uh, corporate uh, restructuring, um, you know, in the same way that maybe an angel fund uh, creates uh, a sort of um, company that. Uh, serves you know, all of its investors, we may, you know, end up creating a, a, a sub entity that, um, you know, uh, encapsulates the crowdfunding investors and to simplify the, you know, the cap table at the top level. Um, that's just, just one idea. So. How do you, I mean, um, this is sort of a direct question, but like, why are your investors happy? I mean, your first seed round was back in February of 2016 with Techstars and Star Power Partners, about $400,000 raised. Here we are four years, I needed product crowdfunding even earlier than that in 2015. Here we are four or five years later and you sit, I mean, there's, there's nothing's been shipped, your pre-revenue. I mean, these guys can't be happy. The, well, it, it depends on, you know, why you get into this, right? Um, a lot of people have, in fact, most of the investors that we have today have gotten involved with Mycroft because they believe in the mission. They believe in what we're trying to do. And experienced investors like Techstars know that startups have, uh, they can encounter stumbling blocks, right? I've, uh, I've been fortunate to avoid some of these in my previous companies and I've full on run right into them and others. And, uh, the, you know, hitting just one stumbling block can kill a startup, right? Hitting two at the same time, you know, can be, you know, an instant death blow. But, um, Mycroft has persisted because the investors, there's, there are just so many people who are, um, who want what we want, right? Who want a privacy respecting voice assistant because the idea of having, you know, of not even having the option 
um, to not allow tech into your home is is just you know crazy to them. So um, so we're we've been able to find people who continue to support our mission, uh, you know, to date to you know to keep the company moving forward. Um, to to be honest, though, that's actually been one of the um, the pitfalls that the company's run into in the past. With this constant cycle of fundraising, you know, it's been hard to focus on product development, and uh, and so that's uh, one of the things that I came in to to help solve. So for the past year, I've basically been bankrolling the company personally myself. And um, to did get you it buy? To the it, point did you buy where, the company? Basically, I mean, you started as an investor. Did you basically come in and buy no. the company? No, I did not. Okay. Uh, nope, I came in as as an investor. I came in, um, you know, basically I'm, uh, uh, you know. Josh and I are peers. We work hand in hand. Um, you know, Josh is is a great guy. He's got a great understanding of the market and the technology, and you know, and I I want him around, right? So um, we work hand in hand on this. You know, I'm bringing my product development experience, and, and you know, and he's bringing his uh, you know his deep understanding of the of the the market and the technology, and um, you know, my main purpose here in, in joining the company was. Uh, to basically to bring some experience in getting product out, you know, mm-hmm. I I've been through this a couple of times, and I know how difficult it can be to get a product uh, shipped. To focus on a product that yeah that, that you can actually yeah. ship. I mean, it's been, four, games, yeah, it's been four, four, four years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's always it's, more features you want to add, but you've got to narrow it down to just the essentials that that you need, and you can so always add more later. Let's fast forward here. We'll go forward a year. You have some products shipped. Is there a software play here, or is it, or is it pure make margin on a hardware speaker sale? No, um, it's it's almost entirely a software play. What we're really promoting here is a platform. Mycroft is promoting a platform. What we have is, um, you know, the smart speakers are sort of our. Uh, the way we get people interested in the platform, because you know, not very many people use voice interaction on their PCs um, or their laptops, right? Um, the smart speaker is sort of a, a Trojan horse, if you will, that like has kind of tricked people into thinking that voice interaction is new and and desirable. But it's been around. The ability to do this has been around for a long time. It's just <laughs> that finding this, um, uh, you know, the right killer app to make it understandable to the user how voice interaction can be useful, uh, you know, took a while. Um, so smart speakers are really just the entree into uh, what is going to be basically ubiquitous voice interaction everywhere. And so that's what we provide is a platform that enables OEMs to uh, voice enable their products and not have to worry about any of the details of how to create, you know, the the multitude of AI systems that are required to recognize a yeah, person's Michael, voice, I, understand I get, their intent. I get the product. I think everyone listening gets the product. What I'm trying to get at is, okay. like, my first question is, you know, listen, Amazon doesn't have to make money on a speaker sale. They can ship every house in America a speaker for free because of the data play on the back end. You don't have that luxury. You you have you cannot give away because you don't have the cash on the cap table. You you can't just give away a subscription fee. Yeah, but you, you can't yep. give away. So it costs you a hundred bucks to make a speaker. You can't give away a million speakers. You don't have a hundred million dollars sitting in your bank, right? And Amazon could. So like the first question is how do you get these speakers like distribution? So, you know, as quickly as possible so that more people rely on your open source OEM privacy friendly SDK that you're building or platform you're building. Well, like I said, initially our distribution is basically to developers because we want to get developer support for our community. Um, But we have interest, you know, we've, we've been in talks with the big, 
you know, the big box retail chains, right? There are people who want to put a privacy respecting solution on their store shelves. You know, we're talking about, you know, Walmart and Target and, you know, these companies want this. Um, and uh, it's just not available. So once it's available, then we can start to talk to people about um, white labeling. That's going to be one initiative we have. Um, you know, it, we're also going to talk to OEMs about cost reduction versions of this. Um, so distribution is really about finding the right partners. Okay, I don't want to get into you know being a hardware distribution company. I want to find the partners who are going to build uh, our technology into their products and then distribute it. So uh, that's really. But, but I think it's a challenge, though, right? I mean that that is why oh, yeah. Facebook, Amazon, Apple. I mean that is why they have so much power here. It's it, they are distribution channels for both hardware and software, and then data collection, and then serving us back commerce, right, related to the data they're ingesting, voice data or other other sorts of data. I just don't understand how you find distribution partners that can be more potent than those big four. The thirty percent of the people who are interested in buying a smart speaker have not done so because of privacy concerns. There's just no way that Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Google can even address that market. That's basically what that 30% of the market has said is, we don't trust these companies. We're just not going to play with them, right? So that market is just sitting there. And as big as the voice market is, just 30% of it is enormous, right? So we don't have any competition right now. But maybe so, there's a reason for that. It's a maybe, maybe, maybe that's exactly the issue. Maybe there's a reason there's no one else doing this. I, I think it's a lack of imagination. You know, it's oh, come easy on, Michael. To... This isn't this isn't sending someone to Mars. A privacy a privacy ba- as, as home speaker that is not backed by one of the big four, and you're not sucking up data. You think that's some original idea that people just haven't imagined? It's it's really hard to convince people to uh, not do things the traditional way. Well, you just like, said there's already 30% of people that this. want this. Yeah, exactly. But find a find a finding a business you know that wants to do this is a different thing, right? Um, you know, my background more most recently was in video games, where we did subscription, and the video game industry has moved a, a lot of its uh, business to the freemium model, where they just give away the product and then they charge for upgrades. And uh, and this is certainly a thing that happens in, in other you know, businesses as well. But it's really not familiar to that many people. And people aren't comfortable with it because they don't understand it. Um, like, there are, there's a lot of reasons to not understand it as well. Like, in video games, one of the most popular things that people like to buy is clothing. It has no impact on the game. It has no effect. It's just personal. It just allows you to express yourself. Well, signaling and is powerful. That's counterintuitive. Right. And, that's, and that is, I think, a thing that... Um, People don't really get, and you know, my, by embracing the idea that we don't want to control the user, we want to empower the user, and uh, and part of that is respecting their privacy. And you know, uh, you know, we do encourage them to opt in and let us use their data in uh, in you know limited ways to help uh, train our machine learning algorithms. But um, but by default, you know, we respect. Their privacy. We do what they want. If they opt in, they can later opt out, and we just delete all their data. Right? Um, this is a this is a you know this is a system where the user is really in control, and people are afraid of doing that. Um, and are they afraid, or do they just that, realize, or they just realize the user is not going to use the thing most effectively? 
I mean, that's actually the thing I think you're going up against here is I think over time as Amazon is able to deliver more and more value to customers with their voice data, more and more people will say, I don't, I know they're collecting my data and I don't actually care because I'm getting so much value. I'm getting, I'm getting a device. I can go online and order and get something two minutes later to my doorstep. Um, they can listen to our voice and they know we're going on a vacation in two months. They give me a $300 discount on the cruise. Like if you deliver enough value, people don't care about privacy in my opinion. Um, there's just not an option. It's like it's like cable TV, right? There was no option to cable TV. You could get a couple of channels over the air, and and that was it. So you either had a couple of channels, you know, uh, network channels, or you had you you know you'd pay some arbitrarily large sum from the one provider that you were uh, you know you could get cable TV from. Now that people have realized that uh, consumers want to have that choice. There's, you know, the market's expanding. We have better television than ever because people are willing to pay for exactly what they want. You know, you can get a subscription to HBO or Disney. Yeah, uh, I'm or saying, even I don't CBS, think people are going to want a speaker that can't add them value. I think they want a speaker and they're okay giving up their privacy rights in exchange for faster delivery times, discounts on goods they love that, that Amazon learned about through audio data. Like, I think people actually want this. I think you're building something that, sure, people say they care about privacy, but if you can deliver enough value, people actually don't care about privacy, in my opinion. In, um, I really don't think that there's an alternative, so I don't think they have a choice. Their choice is to either buy something that doesn't respect their privacy or don't buy anything at all, right? So that's the choice they have right now. But you look at Amazon, you know, I use Amazon. I'm a Prime subscriber. I use it all the time. Um, but in a lot of ways, I don't feel like I have a choice. We actually have a close advisor of ours who's starting up a competitor to Amazon. And, um, you know, and I wish them all the luck because I think that there's a place in the world for a federated system of companies that can deliver the exact same value that Amazon does, um, but without the you know mysterious uh, backdoor um, you know who knows what's going on back there. And that's algorithms. how they deliver yeah. the data. That's how they deliver the value is because they have so much data. That's how they make the system more efficient. There's, there's basically no vendor who's worked with Amazon that hasn't been screwed over by them. If Amazon finds a product that is making good money, they copy it and they sell it themselves. And yeah, you know what? Which is great for the consumer. Difference. Which is great for the consumer because we probably get it cheaper now. Why is that bad for the consumer? Uh, it's bad for the consumer because they don't really have a choice now, right? The, yes, they do. There's a cheaper option. Amazon crushes the competitor, brings in a cheaper option, and you rock and roll like they do with diapers. <laughs> well, That's listen, hey, view, look, we'll have to see what happens. You you prove me wrong. Okay, and you look, this will. interview, I will look very, very silly two years from now if you have a million speakers to market. You will, I will I will post this everywhere on all my socials. I was completely wrong. They killed it. Look at what they've done. Before we wrap up, so let's just talk again about software real quick. Let's say you've got a million devices out there. What is the software subscription look like? Are you charging developers to use it? And if so, what's the monthly price point? Um, so it's it's a completely open source system. It's free to developers. It's free to OEMs to integrate into their system. Um, what we charge is the consumers for basically upgrades. So uh, you get all the basic services, everything that you need to do your normal everyday activities on a smart speaker or a voice assistant. That comes for free. Anybody can make an account and it'll just work. In fact, on a Linux system, you can go do download uh, a Snap install with one click right now and go test it out. Um, it's free to make an account. Um, down the road, we'll provide premium features like custom voices, um, additional languages, different accents. You know, I think that it's really important that um, the technology that we use today reflects our users. And as we move to a voice interface, you know, this has uh, 
it has the trappings of a personality. And I think people want to see you know, their own values, their own culture reflected in the technology they use. And uh, that's just, you know, that's something that we're going to focus on. Um, so those will be upgrade paths. There'll be premium features like access to sites that actually cost us money to use their API, like if we're providing stock quotes or, you know, real-time analytics and various, you know, business markets or things like that, that'd be part of an upgrade. Um, and, uh, you know, there, really there's... Uh, there's just so many options in terms of providing value add to the users above the basic level of subscription uh, or the basic level of just having an account. Um, the uh, you know it's a it's a it's a really open market, um, and I think that you know as video games have moved to uh, you know to this freemium model, uh, I think that um, you know the same thing is going to work really well for us. Mm, yeah, yeah, but video games have billions of users. You haven't shipped a speaker yet. That's why I'm here. Minecraft yeah. has uh, Minecraft hit a couple of stumbling stumbling blocks. Um, you know, I've got a track record of getting hardware out the door. Um, I've got a track record of dealing um, uh, delivering software products. Our, the first the first 3D um, uh, hardware integration I did worked the first time. We didn't have to spin the chip. Then they bought our company. When City of Heroes launched in 2004, we told the developer, or we told our publisher, okay, the game is ready. You can launch it tonight. And then we all went home. We didn't stay there like sweating at our computers to see if it was going to work. We knew it was going to work, and it did. We had a flawless launch. And we didn't, you know, we didn't have 30 developers staying up all night to make sure, it, you know, I know how to do this. I'm going to get a product out there that works. And then we'll see. You know, we'll see if people really care about privacy. Um, but I don't think we can test that until we offer them the choice. When is the product going to be out? When can someone get it in their house? It's working. They can use it. By this time next year, it'll All be right. uh, available for direct sales. So, Michael, sounds like the perfect time for a follow-up interview. This time, though, let's wrap up with the famous spot. Number one, favorite business book? Business book? Um, I think it's called From Many One, the, the story of the, the, the visa startup anyone how right, easy got it started number two is there a ceo you're following or studying no number three what's your favorite online tool for building mycroft um github number four how many hours of sleep breaking every night about five okay and situation married single kids uh married uh twin boys five years old oh wow that's They're exciting awesome. very cool how, how old are you I am 48. 48. Last question. What is something you wish you knew when you were 20, Michael? Um, that uh, people aren't scary. <laughs> Guys, there you have it. Mycroft.ai. They want to introduce a home speaker that does not suck up all of your data and sell it to people and do bad things with it. They raised $5 million to do this. They have speakers out. They have a lot of backers on Kickstarter. The goal is to ship this first speaker product by this time next year. So call it August of 2021. Once that happens, the developer ecosystem can take off and they'll get consumers using this and then have a subscription model where they upsell things like custom voices or custom stock quotes via an API access that they've set up on the back end to monetize this thing full stretch. But ultimately, the play here is a speaker that is not owned by a data-sucking big tech company. Michael Lewis, thanks for taking us to the top. Thank you so much, Nathan. I really appreciate it.